Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hey everybody, welcome to the Drunken UX Podcast. You're listening to episode number 101. This is Design Advice for Developers, and I am your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other other host, Michael or Aaron. How you doing, Michael? Uh, I, can do I was the one who was pre-gaming before this, so <laughs> are you okay, sir? I I haven't been pre-gaming. I just had a brain fart. <laughs> I, was, I was pre-gaming. I'm not gonna lie. I'm taking this episode to heart as far as drunken UX goes. So we'll we'll have some fun with this. Uh, hey. Welcome to the end of the the end of the season. We got three more episodes coming up after this. We hope you're enjoying the show. Keep tuned in, and uh, I, uh, I I I I don't know. <laughs> well, if you know, you should come and tell us at Twitter or Facebook.com/slash/DrunkenUX or at Instagram.com/slash/DrunkenUXPodcast, and come talk with us at DrunkenUX.com/slash/Discord. The new place you can find us, which we kind of talked about on the last episode, is drunkenux.com slash support, which will redirect you to our Patreon. And amazingly, we've got some backers already, don't we? You can tell about we us, We do Michael? have backers. That is because we are super awesome at what we do. I want to give a <laughs> shout out to Lance Romanoff and Brendan Sparks. You guys are awesome. Thanks for backing the show and helping make everything possible. That is money that is going towards our uh, automated transcripts right now. If you look at our Patreon, we do have several goals set up there. Um, the first one, getting to our benchmark for the automated transcripts, and then working towards our eventual goal of getting fully manual transcripts, <laughs> edited by an actual human who knows what words mean, um, as opposed <laughs> to a machine. But It's not not me, clearly. <laughs> we're, the new transcripts are already better, so um, yeah. I'm happy with that as it is, and we will continue to make improvements. So, yes... If you're enjoying the show, if if you're excited about what we're doing and you want to help us at all, you can donate whatever you're comfortable with, whether that's mm-hmm. $1, whether that's $5, whether that's $20. Um, you know, I, I don't set rules on that. And Patreon lets you put in whatever number you want to. So go do that. <laughs> if you do it, let me be clear that you get special stuff. One of those special things is extended interviews. We uh, will be pushing one of those out every couple weeks mm-hmm. um, that go back through not just season four, but I think the end of season three. I forget. It was episode mm-hmm. 79, I think, was the first one. Um, and we'll be releasing extended cuts of all of our interviews from episodes from that point up until current, at which point we will start releasing them in time mm-hmm. with current episodes, obviously, um, that we will eventually catch up with uh, with ourselves there. And then there will also be other things. You get stickers and coasters and things like that for backing us, and we will be adding additional stuff as things change. Aaron, my boy. Yeah. Uh, oh, you didn't. You said you didn't pregame, but I know you I do have a drink over there. So what do we what do we got? I have an actual, honest to goodness, adult beverage. It is just a vodka tonic, though. It is basic. It has a little bit of Rose's lime juice in it. And I use, I think this is Canada Dry Tonic um, with Svedka Vodka. Mm. It's not fancy, but it's like, a, I think my personal, the way I make it myself, I would say. I, uh, I'm i I'm going through my shelf with some of my new stuff, and I am I broke out tonight the Glenmorangie Nectar mm. Dior. Uh, this is one of my favorite scotches. This is a Glenmorangie. Show, show me the bottle. Let me see the bottle. It is, it, there's nothing real fancy about the bottle. It's That's a, nice. It's a 
plain old Glenmorangie bottle for the most part. Um, Glenmorangie is a Highland Scotch, so you get that sort of light, grassy sort of base mm-hmm. note to it. It is the Nectar Dior is finished in Sauterne casks, uh, Sauterne wine, and mm. it gives it sort of this really bright, like white grape. I, I want to use the word sparkle, but sparkle isn't huh. the flavor. But there's <laughs> there is this sort of distinct like sweet wine layer to it. Like if you if you had like a Moscato type of wine, okay. Okay. or something like that. Like there's a a very bright note that sits on top of this that is very sweet and very crunchy, a toffee, very like crunchy toffee type of brightness huh. um, on top of it. Easily one of my favorite scotches. Um, I like Glenmorangie anyway. I love their high end stuff. I love the 18. I love the Signet. Um, I love their standard 10. The Nectar Dior is one of three that they do. Um, that is out of a, uh, one of them's the La Santa, and mm-hmm. I can't remember the other one off the top of my head, but they're all, like, specialty. Like, they're done 10 years standard, and then they finish two years in different types of wine casks. Um, mm-hmm. Tonight, uh, episode 101, we're talking about design advice for developers. Now, what we are talking about is literally, like, I am a developer, and maybe I'm an army of one, or maybe I work somewhere that just doesn't have a design department. And I've been asked to build a site and make it look nice. And I got hired to code. I don't know how to do this. Um, I do want to give credit to those that came before us. Um, Wes Boss over at Syntax, they did a great episode on this. It was episode number 68, if you want to go back mm-hmm. and listen to theirs as well. Um, it was Design Tips for Designers was their episode. And, of course, they are out of this world knowledgeable on all of this stuff. So. <laughs> By all means, if if you like what we have to say, go listen to their show and love what they have to say. And then um, come back but, and listen to us some more. And then come back and listen to us some more, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're fun. We're we're fun and 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 flirty with each other. Yeah. Uh need a kiss. Uh, <laughs> I uh I but I want to talk about this, especially from my where I'm sitting, my my standpoint, mm-hmm. my sit point. Um because I have joked so many times about how I'm not a designer. I'm I'm a bad designer. I'm a coder. I write stuff. I I mm-hmm. like code. Um and but yet I build sites and I build sites for myself. And so, you know, how do I solve those problems? How do how do I get could, into that? Could we unpack for a moment what it means to say I'm not a designer? Like what what do we mean when we say designer in that sentence? What what do we what are we actually saying? What are you saying? Well, you're I part think, of we. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you, let, let's be fair, right? Like, you're yes. a Ruby developer. You consider mm-hmm. yourself a back-end developer, yes? I would say that, like, the 95% of the work I do on a given day is, like, back-end coding. Yes. Yes. Um, But, like, I've done graphic design. Like, I'm not a stranger to InDesign or, like, digital art or, like, I used Park Express many, many years ago. You had to have a weird dongle plugged into the keyboard, and I, that was weird. I remember Quark Express from college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I've had done, a class in it. I've done logo design. I do, like, like painting and stuff for fun. Like, I, I'm not a stranger to art. I would say that my expertise is not in design. Like, in that, I guess I mean, I'm not someone where I would feel comfortable selling my services. Um, as like designing something sure. visually aesthetic or something like that. Um, it's not a an area that I stay current with in the way that I would with like UX or accessibility or 
um, backend technology or like, you know, basic site security, that kind of stuff. I try to read up on those things as they current. I wouldn't say that I'm doing that with whatever's current design trends. Um, so I guess that's kind of what I mean. What, what, what is it for you? What does being a designer mean? Yeah. So I like the fact that you mentioned mm-hmm. like accessibility, right? Because mm-hmm. when I think about things like design, I don't think about stuff like accessibility because sure. accessibility just tells me what to do. It gives me a spec, basically. Now, mm-hmm. we've talked about how accessibility is not a checklist and all of that. But even sure. the stuff that's subjective about accessibility is still stuff that, hey, it's telling me what to do. So as long as I do what it's telling me, I am I can work with that. Accessibility is more about like function than than aesthetics. Right. At the end and so I day. work very well with that. Like I love having like just a thing that says – Here's the things to practice and, mm-hmm. and how you figure it out and how you know if you're compliant and all of this. Um, I have built over my life many sites, let's let's say. <laughs> um, I, however, do not have your background. I am not an art person at all. Um, my wife is an art person, and we've had many conversations about how I have no aesthetic sense of like looking <laughs> at a painting and – I yeah. can respect, like, I can look at a good painting and say, that's a good painting. Right. And then I can look at a famous painting. I'm going to phrase it that way and say, that's sure. garbage because I can <laughs> do that. Like, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't think that way. I don't think abstractly. I'm good at photography. Like, mm-hmm. the idea of like visual composition in the moment, for some reason, I'm, I'm okay at. Yeah. But only through a lens. Um, sure. Literally. Because there's something Literally. very. Yeah, there's something very concrete about photography. I'm taking a real picture of a real thing. Right. And so it's giving me a baseline to operate from once I'm ready to edit. We'll talk about that actual concept mm-hmm. here as far as it applies to, to web design here in a bit. Um, I often hear from people like, oh, I can't draw or I'm not an artist. And it sounds the same as like when someone says they can't do math or they can't write. Right. And I always, I always try to correct people like, I think what you mean is you're just not practiced. It's it's not like some of us are just born with full knowledge of how to do this. It's a it's a function of how much time you put into it, and I, I think the same thing goes with design. And it, and it's perfectly valid to say design isn't important enough to me to put the time in to be better at it. If you want to be just good enough, like if you want to have, um, you know, like a basic level of competency, like. What's the, what's the minimal amount of effort you can put in to to not look like shit? Is that kind of what we're talking about tonight? Can I say yes, but? <laughs> yes. Can I, yes, can but. I, let, can I start with a, a story? Let's start with sure. a, an allegory of sorts. The farmer and the chef. The farmer goes out day and night, plows the fields, plants the seeds, weeds the, the rows, harvests the grain, packs it up, ships it off. He knows his trade well. He grows bountiful harvests every year of all mm-hmm. kinds of fruits and vegetables and grains and 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 manner and sort. Mm-hmm. The chef walks into his kitchen every day and purchases all kinds of the finest food all all across the seas. Mm-hmm. And they know all the different ways to cut and cook and arrange and plate and mm-hmm. present this food to people. And, and one is not the other. Mm-hmm. But the chef deals directly with the things the farmer grows, and the farmer consumes things that the chef may cook. Mm-hmm. Um, they they both deal in food at the end of the day. They are both in the food game. Right. The farmer 
may not be a good cook, though, and the chef may not be able to grow anything. <laughs> but the difference is that what you just said, right? Yeah. So a chef might not be able to go out and plow a field and, and plant acres upon acres of, of a crop. But we could probably teach the chef how to grow a window garden mm-hmm. with some herbs. And the farmer, while the farmer may not be able to produce a a molecular gast- gastronomic <laughs> creation of of your lore, but I bet we can teach him how to make a decent steak and potatoes. Like there, there is an overlap of gray area where both are capable of operating without deep knowledge of the other's territory. And what really differs is the ceiling each has for the other's area of expertise. I think to to relate that back to the point I was making, I think if the farmer gave up, if both of them, you know, farmed and chefed, cooked, chefed, I'm not sure what their word is, <laughs> uh, until, say, age 30, right? And then they decided, okay, we're going to switch switch professions. And they both put in another 10 years in each other's professions. I would say that while maybe the farmer as chef might not be quite as good as the chef wasn't because the chef started with that first and vice versa, the chef may not be quite as good as the farmer was at first. I bet that they'd both be at similar levels of competency. It's just like how much time and energy and effort do you want to put into learning a craft? Well, and just because you ask them to change seats doesn't mean they can change their passion. Sure. Oh, that too. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> because that matters. Being yeah. passionate about something can dramatically affect your ability to learn, retain, and execute on certain things. Mm-hmm. If if you aren't passionate about football and you sit down to watch a Chiefs game with me, I can <laughs> I can teach you every rule of that game and explain everything that's going on and and all the things. And that's not going to make you care. And you're not going <laughs> to. And next week you're going to sit down with me again. And I'm going to tell you the same stuff over because you're not going to retain any of it because it didn't matter to you. Um, I think – and and to be clear, it is totally valid if you're like design doesn't interest me. And it is totally valid if you're a designer and you're like I really don't get into coding. Yeah. It's it's cool. Like there's no – like one of them is not better than the other uh, like practically speaking. And, they both and what, value. I, what I hope you get from this conversation is sort of this idea of yeah, that's not my thing. I don't love it. but. I I need to be able to at least execute a, in that gray area. I need to be able mm-hmm. to cook my steak and potatoes. I need to be able to grow the window box. And <laughs> that doesn't take a lot of effort. And there are a lot of, let's call them, I don't want to call them shortcuts, um, but they are kind of shortcuts. They're crutches. That's maybe, let's use that word. They're crutches mm-hmm. that will help you. And you can lean on them and... There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody leans on those crutches. Mm -hmm. There are three areas that really come to mind for me. The first of which is colors. Mm -hmm. And picking a color palette for most people usually happens pretty early in their process. And and thinking about, you know, well, what are your brand's colors? What are your product's colors? What colors evoke the emotions that you want to evoke? You know, certain colors mean certain things. I think those questions that you're asking right now, like I completely agree with them. And there are questions we should be asking initially. I don't think everyone knows to even ask them, though. I think that deciding 
Deciding yeah. on a color palette isn't something that I think is intuitive to a lot of us, especially people in the back end. Um, that that's something that you would want to decide on first. We we just sort of start working and get to a point where we need color, and then you're like, oh shit. Well, I guess I'll use this color here. This seems like something I've seen before. Throw throw a dart and and see yeah. how it lands. <laughs> well, and that's fine too. Like if you if you're working on something that's sort of a blank slate, and you have the opportunity to just pick colors because you don't have anything to go off of. Like if you're building something, like if you're working somewhere that sells a product, you can always Mm -hmm. steal colors from the product as, you know, an inspiration or something like that. But if you're trying to come up with like a palette, Mm -hmm. because frequently, even if you're using something as a basis for a color, you may need accent colors and background colors and things like that to, to help augment this. Putting that palette together can be kind of a pain in the butt. There are, Two tools I'm going to throw out here at you that I really like for this that work well for me and and, and help aid in this process. One is colorbox.io, mm-hmm. which is a very straightforward tool. You go there. It's got a uh, a deal where you can add colors to a palette, and they will build out things like color ramps for you. Wait, what is it? What's a color? What's a color ramp? So a color ramp is something where, like, if I picked you know, blue, mm-hmm. like a, a good, strong blue, what it would do is give me ratios of that blue as a, uh, and, and I may get this wrong, I believe, right, is it the luminance, I, I think is the right technical phrase for it, the the saturation of it. It's not opacity, okay. but it's like it right, gives right. you a ramp over like, like 10 or I think is it ten or eleven, um, like levels of strength of that color. Got it. So, okay. from a super light version of that color to a super dark version of that color, I believe Looks luminance like- is is the phrase I want to use there. And it will also show you like contrast ratios. So yeah, which, that's nice. Yeah. So like which that. versions of those color combinations work against black and white? For color contrast and that which means accessibility uh purposes i i i like i i mean these things are neat and they're like it seems like useful information but the the, the hue like this is approaching it from like hsl like hue saturation of lightness and um but like web is typically like you know like an rgb basis right um, which is supposed to focus on a hue alone um, so this, I'm looking at Hue. It has start and end, and I'm adjusting these sliders around, and it's doing some wacky shit. <laughs> I, it's neat. Like I, I like the colors it's coming up with, but like, holy shit, man! <laughs> so this tool, though, is nice for that because it does the math for you. It does the color mm-hmm. math for you, so that if you're thinking about, well, this is the color I want as the basis. And so mm-hmm. I want to have like a light version of that and a dark version of that for like accents and highlights and shadows. This solves that problem a little bit by giving you the mathematically equivalent steps away from that color, right? Um, the other one that I've used is Adobe's color tool. Previously, K-U-L-E-R that stylized spelling, but now it's just color, the, the oh, normal spelling. Yeah, okay. Color.adobe.com. This is probably my this favorite. This is cool. This is this is a nice tool. I, 
I, I for developing a color scheme, I'm just looking at it right now. Um, this is great. You have like different color harmony schemes where you like you choose one up front, and then it helps you uh, establish the theme from that. So I, I think it, it's hard when you're picking a color scheme because you have to find colors that like work together, that visually work together. Right. Um, and there's some rules about doing that. But uh, if you don't work with them constantly, they're not easy to remember. Um, but this is cool, though. Yeah, so you can pick from, like, it, it, you start with the color wheel. Pick mm-hmm. a color that works for you. And then you can click through, and there's all different types of what they call harmony rules. So mm-hmm. you start with analogous, which means they're all, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use these words wrong, and I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid to even, like, try to, to, to say this, because, again, I, I'm not a, a design person. That if you were to draw a radius out from the center of the color wheel, these would be colors that are evenly spaced within about a 45-degree angle at the same radius of, of luminance, basically. That's, that's roughly correct. Is that roughly yeah. correct? You can go yeah. monochromatic, which keeps them all along the same radius. You can go triad, which gives you at every, what is it, 120 degrees, you get mm-hmm. a color at every 120 degrees. Complementary colors, this is then Opposites. colors at along a diameter of, you know, somewhere along the diameter, yeah. equidistant uh, from the center. Split complementary, double split complementary, square, compound, shades. Um, you've got all of these different deals, and what they do is they are using math to give you a color combination. Mm-hmm. And usually they're pretty darn good. Like when you see them, yeah. you get a, a, a palette of five colors that you can work with. Then what you can do is you can take those five colors, go over to color box and build ramps out of them. Mm-hmm. So you could turn five colors into 50 colors. Yeah. Yeah. And you could also um, just take the five colors and throw them in your palette on your SAS sheet. And then, uh, I mean, depending on how you've set up your SAS already, it might just work. Like if you have your lights and darks and everything set up. Here's what I want to ask you is, have you ever mm-hmm. used the extract theme? No. Oh, oh, sir. <laughs> so if you cool, go, though. if you go to the Adobe color tool and you upload an image into the extract th- theme panel, it will build a color palette based on an image. <laughs> Oh, that's actually really good. Right? Yeah. So, like, if, cool. you, if you have some visual imagery you're building around, or let's say you have a product, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got some kind of product that you need to build a landing page for, and you have a picture of that product, you could put it in here and use it to pick colors from that product to generate a color palette for you. It's fantastic. This is yeah, this is pretty impressive. I used this recently uh, as I'm kind of working out the color palette to use for the ethics website. Okay. And I've, I've got a photo in the masthead, and I'm using that photo to generate the color palette that's used through the, through the rest of that site. The grays and the pinks that are in there come from that photo. I took a picture of some uh, some cinnamon buns that I put it into there. And it made a palette, and the palette's actually like pretty spot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had I had to drag. There, there was one green from the spatula in the background, and I just I moved that off and picked a different color. But uh, it looks really it's quality. The, this is like as far as crutches go. I love this. Mm-hmm. 
I love this deeply. And the same way you can actually develop gradients. It's got a gradient tool that will do the same thing. You upload an image and it will pick colors along a spectrum of the same color for you. And they've got an accessibility tool that you can just go in and check. Is color A and color B, do they have enough contrast with each other? Um, the the thing that I like nice. about tools like this is that you, whatever your experience with art, this will show you a color palette and you can look at it and instantly think, yes, this works or like, no, it doesn't feel right. And you can make adjustments to it until you find one that feels right to you, whether or not you know why. And, and then it gives you the numbers that you can use to put that into your thing. And that's a decision that's done. You don't have to think about it anymore. I love this. It's decision paralysis, right? We have an infinite mm -hmm. number, effectively, of colors to choose from. And so if I'm trying to pick a five-color palette for something and mm -hmm. looking at, like, your cinnamon Even buns here, <laughs> it's like I I would have a hard time picking mm -hmm. colors out of that cinnamon bun photo and feel like these are the ones that are right. There's, right. A, there's a certain, I guess authority that comes from like a tool that adobe made mm -hmm. that is like these are the colors we are picking and i'm like you know what <laughs> i think that's good i think it looks right and i'm going to trust your algorithm and it's it's not like that's one of those things like it helps break that sort of inability to say well i'm picking these colors and i don't know if i can justify my color choices but and even if even if it gets you like eighty percent of the way there, you can probably pick some. You can probably tweak the rest. Yeah, with what they give you to start with. Like you said, it picked a green to go mm -hmm. in with that, and you didn't like the green, so you just adjusted it to not yeah. have the green in. And there. The, the green, it wasn't. It didn't look bad. Like it wasn't a bad color, but it's just it, I wanted it to be different. Yeah, so yeah. I changed it. And yeah. Beyond colors, we can talk about mm -hmm. typography. Yes. Typography is a huge part of the web because we consume the web in three ways, audio, video, and text. I My advice is, A, don't over-rely on them. Mm -hmm. It is really easy to go to a free font site and find all kinds of fancy fonts and want to use them all. And that becomes a speed problem for your website. It becomes a size problem for your website to have tons and tons of fonts. And... It's just too much. Um, mm -hmm. It's okay to have a web font or two, but if you start pushing into three or more, you need to ask yourself, how how do these fonts serve the design at that point? And so it's it's a cautionary tale, but I do like font as a stand-in for some design. Mm-hmm. Because it can be interesting, it can be visually appealing, it can draw attention to something. Using it in a masthead or on a, a call to action or something like that can get people's eye and make up for the fact that you don't know maybe what to do there otherwise. Mm -hmm. You don't have a fancy logo or you don't have a, a really like high-detailed SVG of some kind of illustration. And... There are a million fonts out there, so maybe you can find a font that will help tell the story of the site that you're wanting to build. The fonts are like a, a palette for words. Like, you know, when you're, you're choosing to, if you're going to paint a picture or, you know, to make an image of some kind, you're choosing colors for that. 
and your font choice is sort of the same thing. It like it taints the experience of how the reader might respond to reading the text. And and you you want to make sure to keep it readable. There are yes. tons and tons of fonts out there that are very, <laughs> shall we say, artistic in nature. And they're please, terrible please to don't read. Use a script font for body copy. Body copy use should always be nice basic. and plain. Basic. Now that okay, doesn't so that, mean don't use a web font for them. Oh right? no, no, you can totally use a web font, but like just use something that's easy to read. Sim always keep simple sans serif in mind for body fonts. Maybe a, a nice elegant serif for headers and things like that. Or vice versa. But okay, so that, wild scripting, yeah. That goes into my my hint. This is something that I learned like in an actual graphic design class in college many, many years ago. Um, so I'm going to oversimplify it because we're talking like this is for people who aren't designers by training. So if you are a designer by training, I apologize for the reductiveness. But um, so you have a serif font, which is a font that has the little like flags with little flourishes on the on the tips of all the letters. Then you have sans serif fonts that would be like an Arial. So Times New Roman is a serif font. Arial is a sans serif. Does not have the serifs on it. Calibri, I think, is the... Yeah, Calibri. Mm -hmm. The replacement for Arial. Oh, okay, okay. Or like Verdana. I think that was the Windows one, right? Or um, Helvetica is a sans serif. Helvetica, yeah. Um, so, and then there's uh, like, I'll call them novelty fonts. These are ones that like, where each letter has character to it. Like maybe there's one that's like block letters, but it has like snow on them, or it looks like it, the letters are bleeding. You want to use novelty fonts as little as possible. These are like accents only. Yeah, these are words that it's okay to spend a little time reading, but not body copy. And then choose either a serif or sans serif for a block of text, whether it's a heading or body copy or something, and use one font for serif and one for sans serif at most like pick one for each don't don't choose multiple sans serif fonts you're going to get clashes it's going to be like wearing a blue and a slightly different blue at the same time um it's going to look weird yeah uh but you can get good font contrast easily with for example having a serif font in your heading and then sans serif in the body copy or vice versa Whatever looks good to you. If you want to use one sans serif font for both the heading and the body copy, that's fine. Just use the same font. Or make them, if you if you must use two different sans serif fonts or serif fonts, make them look obviously different. Like really, really different. I, I like your use of the term uh, novelty font. That, <laughs> that works. That it works extremely well. With the current um, design collateral we use for Drunken UX, like on our uh, social images and uh, mm, album yeah, covers, our, I use a novelty is, font yes, for that. that is a That's, novelty font. That is a great example of me using a <laughs> font to make up for my lack of design skills. And it worked okay for a while. I want to do better it's, than that now. Sure. It's visually interesting. It's it's effective. I mean, it's it was a great choice. Um, I just wouldn't use it for the body copy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine trying to read an entire paragraph oh of text God. in stencil font. That that wouldn't work. <laughs> what does your bounce rate go way up? That's how you get your bounce rate to go way up. <laughs> Tools. Adobe also has their fonts tool, though you do have to have a Creative Cloud license to use it. Mm. If mm -hmm. you don't have a Creative Cloud license, Google Fonts is one option, and another option is Font Squirrel. Um, 
I don't know if people still use Font Squirrel, but I used the heck out of it years ago, and I know they're still around. And mm-hmm. they have like like royalty free uh, open license uh, web fonts that you can go use and cool. dig through and find something that matches you know the style that you want. So go go check all of those out. Now let's talk design, yeah. actual design, like encompassing of anything artistic. Um, <laughs> most of the time, you're going to need icons of some kind, and I don't want to design icons. I don't. I'm not. Again, I'm not good at that. I don't understand going into InDesign and creating SVGs. That's not. That's just not my bag, yo. Am I allowed to say that? And I feel like I'm way too old to say something like that. Uh, you can say it ironically, right? Okay. Uh, I, I my skateboard's in the closet. My music band shirts in the laundry. I'm sorry. Um, Font awesome. Is a great resource though for lots mm-hmm. of like icons of all different types. It's a mm-hmm. paid service. They do have a free tier with a a ton of stuff that the f- the free tier has. The free tier I- I've is used great. the free tier many times, and it has um, pretty much all of the basic uses: the check boxes, the circles, the squares, a lot of um, like functional icons, like a kind of basic emoji, monochromatic emoji. Uh, a similar tool is the Noun Project. I like that one a lot too. Noun Project is very cool. Um, yeah. Same deal. They have a free tier, but they also have paid tiers if if you're so inclined. Um, mm-hmm. the the forty bucks a year if you are a professional web dev, you get a lot for that forty bucks. Mm-hmm. That can really get in and fill a lot of gaps. And if you are working at an organization, it's even better because it can help take care of so they don't want to pay you know, $60,000 a year for a designer, then how about spend mm-hmm. 40 bucks a year on the noun project <laughs> and get a noun pro subscription and be able to have access to all of this stuff and the way to, you know, change size, color, all of this kind of stuff. Um, definitely. Google has, definitely Google has a material design. Oh, thing yes. That has material um, icons. Yes. Uh, I'm using them on an app that I'm building right now. I, I may switch to a different library, but I've I've had good luck with it so far. And they have uh, quite a lot of options, and it's rel- relatively easy, easy to use. Yes, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great call out, um, especially mm-hmm. because again, we'll talk about this in just a second. They're also familiar to people. Yeah, um, that's another big pro. That's one of the reasons. And uh, Font Awesome as well. Font Awesome mm-hmm. is out there so much. A lot of their stuff is very like readily apparent to people. You can do stuff like overlaying two different icons with each other. Like if you want to make, uh, if you want to have like, I don't know, like a picture of a man with a suitcase, but you have it inside of a circle with a no symbol through it, you can take like two or three different icons and overlay them onto each other. And the the site shows you how to do that. It's really easy to do. Very flexible. That's a cool, Um, I've not done that. That's a cool idea though. Yeah. Yeah. Remix. Remix baby. Yeah. (laughs) Um, layout wise thinking like the whole site and and how you're going to do that Mm -hmm. one piece of advice i will give you is go find yourself an opinionated framework yeah an opinionated framework can help fill in with their design choices for things that you may not be ready to tackle so you just brought material icons right material Mm -hmm. design is a design system you can go download you'll get all their css and they have made design choices for their framework so that when mm-hmm. you start using it, 
your site is going to naturally want to follow some of those choices they have made. These are things like um, spacing or uh, – how, like how does a heading, menu look? Heading size. Yeah. Headings. Like, or what – when you have like a list, how far apart are the list what, items? What do your what do form look options like? look like? Yeah. How do labels and input fields fit together? Uh, I 100% back this. Uh, honestly, when I make a new site like the app in a building right now for fun, uh, I go when I find a template that fits that – I find a template whose markup looks, I want to say cleanliness, but I feel like that's the wrong word. Uh, simplicity? I guess simplicity would be better uh, that I feel comfortable with because I'm going to be writing a lot of it manually probably. Um, and I just like, I don't know, I like clean looking HTML. Like I, I find that the source code looks more aesthetically pleasing right. if it doesn't have a million divs and spans. So that's personal choice but i but i find an existing template and then i just extend it that's because that's just easier for me i i would i would rather spend my time on other parts of the process right right as most developers would so this makes those choices for you You change some colors change some Mm -hmm. sizes or whatever set the variables you're good to go uswds is another one of these right the united states web design system this is We've mentioned mm-hmm. this before on the show. It's it's the official design system of governmental websites that's also freely available for you to use. Mm-hmm. And they have made a lot of these choices. Um, it's quite good, and and it has accessibility baked in right from the beginning. Right. Um, if you if you aren't if you're designing something that's like basic functionality, you just need it to look clean to be easy to consume. USWDS is awesome. Now, will it look like other sites designed with it? Yes, absolutely, probably. Yeah, but. That's probably not your biggest concern at that point. Like, and it, it's not a bad thing, right? Either. It makes it look nice. <laughs> it looks nice. We're, and I, we have a very specific call out to to reinforce this uh, in a second. <laughs> One thing I'll throw out: it's not a design system or, or a framework, but it is a template library. I'm going to mention. I've recommended this to people many, many times. Um, it's HTML5 up. And I'm looking this up. This is a a, a oh shit. Oh my god, this is my new favorite thing. I love this. Holy crap, man. This is this is like looking at the WordPress theme library, but but it's like not for WordPress. This this is built by AJ. And dude, mm-hmm. I I would love to give you credit for your last name and I pulled you up as I'm talking about this and your Twitter is just AJ uh, LKN. So, um but AJ has created this and it released these templates under a Creative Commons license. They are vanilla HTML and CSS. Mm-hmm. They are available under Creative Commons. There are a lot of them, what, 18, 19, something like that, that you can go in and download. And all of these make for great like starting points where you can go in then and edit them, clean them up, change colors, use parts of it or not parts of it. Um, but this has been like a really nice starting point. I've used it for, yeah, for sites. Is- I've recommended it to a lot of people who... If you're doing a static like site generator type uh, mm-hmm. setup, something like this is fantastic because it can make up all of the basis of your templates, and it doesn't need WordPress crap. It doesn't need Django. It doesn't need any kind of Joomla mm-hmm. stuff or or Adobe Web Experience or Experience Engine or whatever it's called. Um, that's I got all of those wrong. The, this is exactly the kind of thing that I would start with. I, you take the one that looks the closest to what you want. And then you just modify it. It's yeah. like when I had that the color palette thing. Like you know, like you get to eighty percent of the way there, and then you just tweak it 
to get it the rest of the way. Um, and that's, I, I, even if you have very little design experience, if you can find your way around some CSS and HTML, uh, then it'd be good. Slap a coat of paint on it. It's the same house, yeah. but it's a different slap, color now. Slap the hood. You can fit 15 million websites in this template. <laughs> um, <laughs> The same goes for all the other ones, right? Like Bootstrap, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Foundation, is, all of these. This, I, I added it to the list. Does that count? Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. Like, does that fit here? Okay. Yeah, it's got design choices yeah. that have been made in it. Yeah. Um, it, any kind, anything you do wireframe-wise mm-hmm. can help lead to design inspiration because you're still dealing in space. You're still dealing in layout. I <laughs> I, I, I use pen and paper. Um, no, I, uh, that's fair, man. That's totally fair. This is like this is like way back to the early two thousands or maybe even before. Um, I we just when I worked at some jobs previously, I would just uh, my boss would ask what I wanted for office supplies, and I'd say just gave me some legal pads. Um, I use graph paper sometimes. Uh, I did a um, I helped out on a site recently, and my partner was doing a site that she's making for a whole thing, and she was struggling with the layout, and I just got a piece of paper out, and I was like sketching out you know, some things just with pen and paper. And I, I don't know. I, I find that when you're dealing with like a 10,000 foot view of layout, sometimes it's easier to just be able to just move your hand on a page and have it make the shapes it, you want. It very much changes your headspace, right? Like getting away mm-hmm. from the monitor. There's, there is something very visceral about that process. Right. It's the a very, such a small amount of translation between idea and then like seeing what it looks like. You don't have to worry about an interface. You have a stylus and you have a page and that's it. But all design starts with that sort of basic prototyping, wireframing, mm-hmm. draw where you want things and see where you go. Because here's the thing from wireframes, you can always get into minimalism. Mm-hmm. If you're not good in design, if you're not like great at creating graphics and all of that, minimalism is still design. And sticking mm-hmm. to a simple grid with basic boxes and things like that, that is still design. You are still making something that is visually appealing. There's a, there's a quote from an article over at TopTal that it says, if you don't know what you're doing, do less. I love that. Which, which is a brilliant variant on our fra- favorite phrase of do less better. <laughs> <laughs> and so if if you're feeling overwhelmed by design concepts and decision making and figuring out colors or, or objects, mm-hmm. then keep it simple. Do less, think wireframe, and work up from there. I did that with the drunken UX redesign, and mm-hmm. I layered one extra sort of piece on top of that, which was geometry. Mm-hmm. Geometry is very simple. Geometry can be done with polygons in CSS. And so what you're going to end up seeing with this redesign is a lot of design decisions that come from the fact that I know math and I am comfortable Mm -hmm. in math. And I said, if I know math, I can do geometry. Mm -hmm. And geometry is also design. Sure. I like that if you don't know what you're doing, do less. Uh, Design decisions can be exciting if you take risks and be bold and you know it's good to like you push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit by making a decision to use geometry as part of the theme that's great um and being a little bit uncomfortable with some choices you're making i think is a fantastic thing to do uh but like no know, know your no know, know your space like 
you know, if you're if you're the farmer cooking a thing, probably not gonna like make some kind of elaborate six course meal, but maybe like you try cooking your steak slightly differently, or maybe you try like a fancy dessert or something. Or or be careful about being bold that everybody you everybody's got that friend that likes some bizarre food or goes to the <laughs> Thai restaurant and gets it Thai spicy, you know, like yeah. like everybody's got that person in their life. And it's like just because you like all the ketchup on your steak or all the salt on your pasta <laughs> or all the spice in your soup doesn't mean everybody else will. Mm-hmm. Resist some of those urges. If you're not comfortable as a designer, boldness is kind of your enemy a little bit. And you should <laughs> think about it like keep those bumpers up on the bowling alley for a little bit. Okay. You know, okay. like let's actually get really comfortable throwing that ball down the lane before we take mm-hmm. them down and get crazy and throw a ball across, you know, two other people's lanes. <laughs> this, but th- this is while I can tell you funny little anecdotes and, and metaphors for this. This is Jacob's law in action. Yeah. This is, yeah. if you're not comfortable with the design, it's, it's always going to be best to stick to things that your users are familiar with things that are tried and mm-hmm. true and that won't push them away because, Oh, it's too salty. Oh, it's whatever. That's that's one of the reasons why I like those pre-made templates because it's just a lot of decisions are already made decisions for you. Decisions are made. And then you can add the spice that you want to it and you know and the little flourishes and things and just kind of make it your own. This also makes it important uh to make the point of whatever you're building and whatever you're designing, get your feedback really early. Mm-hmm. Don't make the whole cake and then have somebody try it. And find yeah, out. Taste the batter first. Yeah, taste the batter <laughs> first. Like check in a couple times with folks, see how they are reacting to these things you're making. My my process when I'm sort of brainstorming ideas is like if I'm doing a logo or something, I'll start off and I'll make ten. I'll, I'll make ten different ones. Usually, like, well, like you, you, anybody can just be like, I've got three ideas, right? I've got a small handful of ideas. I'll just draw them out. But if you push yourself like at least twice as far as that, whatever you can think of easily, you know, double it. So if you can get to three to five, do another three to five. And those are the ones where you're actually pushing yourself to really That's explore not, yeah. the space. I like that. that. That's a nice mentality. And then cut down, get rid of two thirds of them. Look at them with someone else, you know, set it down for an hour and come back to it and be like, okay, two thirds of these have to go. So you choose, you know, six of them, we'll say six or seven. And you just strike them out. And it'll probably be obvious for a few of them, but you're also going to have to, you know, murder your darlings as we've talked about before. Um, And then take those remaining three or four and then do two or three variants of each one of them. And be prepared for the feedback. You said you you (laughs) said murder your darlings. Be prepared for people to hate the one that you love. Yeah. That may be the one that 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 may be the one that's a little too salty. (laughs) But do um do two or three variations of each of those ones that remain. And then usually by that point, you'll have a pretty good literacy about what it is. Like you'll kind of, you'll circle around what you're actually wanting to get at. And after that second pass, do the same thing, you know, eliminate two thirds of them. And then from the remaining ones, you should have a few that are, are actually like you can run by some people, um, get a few people's opinions of which one they like best. Um, 
but that's that's like that's an iterative process that I've used a number of times when I'm trying to like explore uh like a a creative endeavor or like thing i'll I'll wrap up this part of the conversation just to give you some inspiration ideas because again, mm-hmm. like Jacob's law and like be wearing the bold, look at what other folks have done um dribble I think is still a great place to go and just look around and and type in what you're looking for, what you're trying to build. And get some, you know, inspiration from what other people have done. Um, Behance has a very similar tool I'll have linked in the show notes. Again, where you can go in, look at web design, look at different techniques, look at how people have tackled the same challenges that you're looking to tackle. That can answer a lot of questions for you and give you a sense of how do I make this thing in a way that other people will react positively to. The this the the generic version of this is. Go look at other things like you. If you're going to build a, mm-hmm. a site for a video game that you play, well, go look at other sites for games that are similar to it. Go look mm-hmm. at other people who have tackled this problem and see what they're doing and, and how they've found success because that's going to tell you a lot that you can use. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you remember this having worked in higher ed, but just because everyone else is doing something doesn't always make it a good that, idea. That is true. That, that's fair. <laughs> Girls under trees, girls under trees, carousels, carousels, all yeah. No, that that's fair because there is a there is a lot of follow the leader mentality, and that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily end well. But generally it's good, speaking, good points of inspiration, though. Yeah, yeah. You can usually trust a lot of that. I think it's good to look at what other people are doing for inspiration points, like to to look at something and say, "I like this," or "I think this would fit with what I'm trying to do," um, rather than looking at it as what should I be doing? Like, don't let other people's work dictate what you're doing, but use it just to sort of get ideas about what's possible. Yeah. The the one piece of advice I really want to give is get away from the f***ing computer. Mm-hmm. Go to a museum. Go to a park. Go walk around some of the buildings in your downtown. Mm-hmm. Go just be around things in space. Look at the shirts people are wearing. Look at the colors mm-hmm. they're using on the front of a house. Look at the shapes they're cutting bushes into. There's a lot of inspiration that you can draw from the world around you. And there's a lot of world. If you are if you're lucky enough to live in an area with like some parks and even better like woods or something where you can go hiking, the the natural world is a really great place to kind of uh, let your mind wander, and um, you'll notice like colors and shapes and lines and other things, and those can be good points of inspiration to integrate into whatever design choices you're making. Let's wrap this up with one quick run through. So there's okay. an article over at CSS Tricks by Andrew Spencer. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote this up as design principles for developers. Um, and he focused on three concepts that are pretty close to what we just talked about. He, he broke them down as color space and typography. If, okay. if you're I like this, if you're a developer trying to figure out how to think about design, this is a great way to approach it because mm-hmm. that encompasses most of the stuff that you will do. The reason I want to run through these real fast is because of how they align to the laws of UX. 
Okay. I thought it was funny. I thought it was interesting. Um, and I, I thought maybe it, it would give a, some rationale to kind of ground what we're talking about in to maybe help uh, make it more concrete. So color. When we think mm-hmm. about color, and we talked about the Adobe color tool and the color palettes that you can create with it, why do we create color palettes? Oh, uh, because we want to have different colors, but we want them to feel like part of a whole. Part of a whole. The law yeah. of similarity. Mm-hmm. The human eye tends to perceive similar elements in a design as a complete picture, shape, or group, even if those ele- elements are separated. Mm-hmm. Color is one of the ways that we can apply similarity to things. So headings may all be a similar color. The backgrounds of a key takeaway block might be a similar color. Buttons might be a similar color. We make these things similar to, or we make these things the same color to draw similarity. Color is one piece of information that we can use to learn how to interact with something. So like in interaction design, if you know, if you've learned that like a green button is like advancing and like a gray or red button is retreating or backing out, um, then you can make use of that to help, you know, on, if you may have one form that has the buttons look a certain way and you're using the colors in those way, then on a different form that's maybe laid out differently, the user can know the, the subconsciously they'll look, okay, before I went forward by clicking on a green thing, here's a green thing. That's probably what I click on to go forwards. Let's talk space. Mm-hmm. We've got three that we can rely on here. Law of common region. Elements tend to be perceived into groups if they are sharing an area with a clearly defined boundary. Law of proximity. Mm -hmm. Objects that are near or proximate to each other tend to be grouped together. And the von Restorff, God, von Restorff effect, (laughs) also known as the isolation effect, predicts that when multiple similar objects are present, the one that differs from the rest is most likely to be remembered. Oh, that's neat. So, what does all this have to do with space? White space and negative space is also design. Mm -hmm. You should resist the temptation to fill up negative space with content. Absolutely. And this is something, the web at large, I would say probably two-thirds of the web um, sucks at this. (laughs) They, They fill up negative space with ads. They fill it up with imagery. They try to cram so much stuff into there. I, I really love sites like Medium or sites that have similar uh, minimalist layouts where it's basically just the text because it's so much easier to read. You, you, can, you can read through the page without distraction. I, that's just great. Yeah. White space is a huge design tool. Um, mm-hmm. And you can convey an, uh, an enormous amount of information about the thing you're building based on how you group things. How you put them together in space, how you combine them with borders or shadows, anything like that. Space can be a powerful, powerful conveyor of information. The there was um I was giving some UX feedback to uh, Polywork, the site we talked about on the last episode. Um they have they have like some kind of internal jargon that they use to describe some of their things. It's the it's their theme. It's cool. Like, you know. That's just some choices they made. But there was a couple buttons that 
the the meaning of the buttons wasn't always intuitive and they would put it far away from the part of the page that it affected and one of the pieces of feedback i had was that this button since it's affecting this area you should move that button down to this area because then the possibilities of what that button could do are like heavily constrained and so i i would look at that button being near this one zone and i might think like oh well this button probably does something here. What are the possible reasons that it could do? And then it again, going back to the gulf of execution, like it it keeps it narrows it significantly than having it way up in the nav bar at the top, where it could be any number of things. Yeah. The last one's typography, and this one's the aesthetic usability effect. Users often perceive aesthetically pleasing design as design that's more usable. Hmm. When we were talking about fonts and I said, oh, that's interesting. Don't, don't use too many fonts and, yeah. and don't overload yourself with novelty fonts. Mm -hmm. If it's not aesthetically pleasing, it doesn't matter how good everything else is. If it's ugly, people will perceive it as being less usable. Mm -hmm. That's in, I hadn't considered about that, but that's a good point though. I, I wonder, I wonder why that is. Do we, do we perceive? That if something is aesthetically pleasing, it's had more thoughtfulness put into it. And so it's like we expect it to be easier to use. Like there's less disorder, so we expect it to be more welcoming. You should want your site to be consumable. Like it's not a rejection of you as a person. Absolutely. Like, like you you are not your website. Right. Um, like your thoughts that you're putting into there are what people want to see. And you should give. You should not make the presentation of your thoughts be a barrier to engaging with your thoughts. So keep your thoughts in mind. Sit back. Take a second break. Maybe even a five-second break. And we'll be right back. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, and we really hope that you have, be sure to check us out on Twitter or Facebook at slash DrunkenUX. If you're on Instagram, we're slash drunken UX podcast. And if you ever want to chat with us, by golly, come see us on Discord. It's drunkenux.com slash Discord. That'll drop you right in there, and you'll be the first to hear anything. You can ask us questions. You can chat with us because I live on Discord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, legitimately, I would like to know what sorts of things are, are getting in your way. Um, but thank you all for listening. And, uh, you know, check out the Patreon. It's a new thing. You don't have to subscribe, but, like, if having, uh, like, accessible transcripts and things, something that's important to you, like, that's what we're putting the money towards. And it would be really awesome if you want to subscribe and help out with that. So, it, that's cool. No, no, that's, uh, it, it really reminds me, too, of, like, how important, A, the, the show is made for you guys. I enjoy making it. I enjoy talking about this stuff and, and educating folks and sharing what we know and what we've learned over. I just had this conversation. Like I'm now getting ready to go to into about 26 years worth of building websites. And <laughs> it's, it's one thing to talk to folks on Twitter and, or, or Facebook or things and, and answer these questions and build these uh, relationships. Now that we have the Patreon set up and people can come and, and show their support, it gives us another channel to really learn how to keep our personas close and our users closer. <laughs> you asshole. Bye-bye. <laughs>